Section 16 of The Good Soldier A Tale of Passion This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti The Good Soldier A Tale of Passion by Ford Maddox Ford Part 4 Chapter 2 Well, that about brings me up to date of my receiving in Waterbury the laconic cable from Edward to the effect that he wanted me to go to Branshaw and have a chat. I was pretty busy at the time, and I was half-minded to send him a reply cable to the effect that I would start in a fortnight. But I was having a long interview with old Mr. Hurlbird's attorneys, and immediately afterwards I had to have a long interview with the Mrs. Hurlbird. So I delayed cabling. I had expected to find the Mrs. Hurlbird excessively old, in the nineties or thereabouts. The time passed so slowly that I had the impression that it must have been thirty years since I had been in the United States. It was only twelve years. Actually, Miss Hurlbird was just sixty-one, and Miss Florence Hurlbird fifty-nine, and they were both mentally and physically as vigorous as could be desired. They were indeed more vigorous mentally than suited my purpose, which was to get away from the United States as quickly as I could. The Hurlbirds were an exceedingly united family, exceedingly united except on one set of points. Each of the three of them had a separate doctor whom they trusted implicitly, and each a separate attorney, and each of them distrusted the other's doctor and the other's attorney and naturally the doctors and the attorneys warned one all the time against each other. You cannot imagine how complicated it all became for me. Of course, I had an attorney of my own, recommended to me by young Carter, my Philadelphia nephew. I do not mean to say that there was any unpleasantness of a grasping kind. The problem was quite another one, a moral dilemma. You see, old Mr. Hurlbird had left all his property to Florence with the mere request that she would have erected to him in the city of Waterbury, Illinois, a memorial that should take the form of some sort of institution for the relief of sufferers from the heart. Florence's money had all come to me, and with it old Mr. Holbrook's. He had died just five days before Florence. Well, I was quite ready to spend a round million dollars on the relief of sufferers from the heart. The old gentleman had left about a million and a half. Florence had been worth about eight hundred thousand, and as I figured it out, I should cut up about a million myself. Anyhow, there was ample money, but I naturally wanted to consult the wishes of his surviving relatives. And then the trouble really began. You see, it had been discovered that Mr. Hurlbird had nothing whatever the matter with his heart. His lungs had been a little affected all through his life, and he had died of bronchitis. It struck Miss Florence Hurlbird that since her brother had died of lungs, and not the hardest money ought to go to lung patients, that, she considered, was what her brother would have wished. On the other hand, by a kink that I could not at the time understand, Miss Hurlbird insisted that I ought to keep the money all to myself. She said that she did not wish for any monuments to the Hurlbird family. At the time, I thought that was because of a New England dislike for necrological ostentation. 
but I can figure out now, when I remember certain insistent and continued questions that she put to me about Edward Ashburnham, that there was another idea in her mind. And Leonora has told me that, on Florence's dressing table beside her dead body, there had lain a letter to Miss Hurlbird, a letter which Leonora posted without telling me. I don't know how Florence had time to write to her aunt, but I can quite understand that she would not like to go out of the world without making some comments. So I guess Florence had told Miss Hurlbird a good bit about Edward Ashburnham in a few scrawled words, and that that was why the old lady did not wish the name of Hurlbird perpetuated. Perhaps also she thought that I had earned the Hurlbird money. It meant a pretty tidy lot of discussing. What with the doctors warning each other about the bad effects of discussions on the health of the old ladies, and warning me covertly against each other, and saying that old Mr. Hurlbird might have died of heart after all, in spite of the diagnosis of his doctor. And the solicitors all had separate methods of arranging about how the money should be invested and entrusted and bound. Personally, I wanted to invest the money so that the interest could be used for the relief of sufferers from the heart. If old Mr. Horbird had not died of any defects in that organ, he had considered that it was defective. Moreover, Florence had certainly died of her heart, as I saw it, and when Miss Florence Hurlbird stood out that the money ought to go to chest sufferers, I was brought to thinking that there ought to be a chest institution too, and I advanced a sum that I was ready to provide to a million and a half of dollars. That would have given seven hundred and fifty thousand to each class of invalid. I did not want money at all badly. All I wanted it for was to be able to give Nancy Ruford a good time. I did not know much about housekeeping expenses in England where I presumed she would wish to live. I knew that her needs at that time were limited to good chocolates and a good horse or two and simple pretty frocks. Probably she would want more than that later on, but even if I gave a million and a half dollars to those institutions, I should still have the equivalent of about twenty thousand a year English, and I considered that Nancy could have a pretty good time on that or less. Anyhow, we had a stiff set of arguments up at the Hurlbird Mansion, which stands on a bluff over the town. It may strike you, silent listener, as being funny if you happen to be European, but moral problems of that description and the giving of millions to institutions are immensely serious matters in my country. Indeed, they are the staple topics for consideration amongst the wealthy classes. We haven't got peerage and social climbing to occupy us much and decent people do not take interest in politics or elderly people in sport. So that there were real tears shed by Miss Hilbert and Miss Florence before I left that city. I left it quite abruptly. Four hours after Edward's telegram came another from Leonora, saying, Yes, do come. You could be so helpful. I simply told my attorney that there was the million and a half that he could invest it as he liked and that the purposes must be decided by the Mrs. Hurlbird. I was, anyhow, pretty well worn out by all the discussions, and, as I have never heard yet from the Mrs. Hurlbird, I rather think that Miss Hurlbird, either by revelations or by moral force, has persuaded Miss Florence that no memorial to their names shall be erected in the city of Waterbury, Connecticut. 
Miss Hurlbird wept dreadfully when she heard that I was going to stay with the Ashburnhams, but she did not make any comments. I was aware, at that date, that her niece had been seduced by that fellow Jimmy before I had married her, but I contrived to produce on her the impression that I thought Florence had been a model wife. Why, at that date, I still believed that Florence had been perfectly virtuous after her marriage to me. I had not figured it out that she could have played it so low down as to continue her intrigue with that fellow under my roof. Well, I was a fool, but I did not think much about Florence at that date. My mind was occupied with what was happening at Branshaw. I had got it into my head that the telegrams had something to do with Nancy. It struck me that she might have shown signs of forming an attachment for some undesirable fellow and that Leonora wanted me to come back and marry her, out of harm's way. That was what was pretty firmly in my mind, and it remained in my mind for nearly ten days after my arrival at that beautiful old place. Neither Edward or Leonora made any motion to talk to me about anything other than the weather and the crops. Yet, although there were several young fellows about, I could not see that anyone in particular was distinguished by the girl's preference. She certainly appeared illish and nervous, except when she woke up to talk gay nonsense to me. Oh, the pretty thing that she was. I imagined that what must have happened was that the undesirable young man had been forbidden the place and that Nancy was fretting a little. What had happened was just hell. Leonora had spoken to Nancy, Nancy had spoken to Edward, Edward had spoken to Leonora, and they had talked and talked and talked. You have to imagine horrible pictures of gloom and half-lights and emotions running through silent nights, through whole nights. You have to imagine my beautiful Nancy appearing suddenly to Edward, rising up at the foot of his bed, with her long hair falling like a split cone of shadow in the glimmer of a nightlight that burned beside him. You have to imagine her, a silent, a no-doubt agonized figure, like a specter, suddenly offering herself to him to save his reason. And you have to imagine his frantic refusal and talk and talk. My God! And yet, to me living in the house, enveloped with the charm of the quiet and ordered living, with the silent, skilled servants who were laying out my dress clothes, was like a caress. To me, who was hourly with them, they appeared like tender, ordered, and devoted people smiling, absenting themselves at the proper intervals, driving me to meets, just good people. How the devil, how the devil do they do it? At dinner one evening, Leonora said she had just opened a telegram. Nancy will be going to India tomorrow to be with her father. No one spoke. Nancy looked at her plate. Edward went on eating his pheasant. I felt very bad. I imagined that it would be up to me to propose to Nancy that evening. It appeared to me to be queer that they had not given me any warning of Nancy's departure. But I thought that that was only English manners, some sort of delicacy that I had not got the hang of. You must remember that at that moment I trusted in Edward and Leonora, and in Nancy Rufford, and in the tranquility of ancient haunts of peace, as I had trusted in my mother's love. And that evening Edward spoke to me. What in the interval had happened had been this. Upon her return from Nauheim, Leonora had completely broken down, because she knew she could trust Edward. That seems odd, but 
If you know anything about breakdowns, you will know that by the ingenious torments that fate prepares for us, these things come as soon as a strain having relaxed, there is nothing more to be done. It is after a husband's long illness and death that a widow goes to pieces. It is at the end of a long rowing contest that a crew collapses and lies forward upon its oars. And that was what happened to Leonora. From certain tones in Edward's voice, from the long, steady stare that he had given her from his bloodshot eyes on rising from dinner-table in the Nauheim Hotel, she knew that in the affair of the poor girl this was a case in which Edward's moral scruples or his social code or his idea that it would be playing it too low down rendered Nancy perfectly safe. The girl, she felt sure, was in no danger at all from Edward. And in that she was perfectly right. The smash was to come from herself. She relaxed. She broke. She drifted. At first quickly, then with an increasing momentum, down the stream of destiny. You may put it that, having been cut off from the restraints of her religion, for the first time in her life, she acted along the lines of her instinctive desires. I do not know whether to think that in that she was no longer herself, that, having let loose the bonds, her standards, her conventions, and her traditions, she was being, for the first time, her own natural self. She was torn between her intense maternal love for the girl and an intense jealousy of the woman who realizes that the man she loves has met what appears to be the final passion of his life. She was divided between an intense disgust for Edward's weakness in conceiving this passion and intense pity for the miseries that he was enduring, and a feeling equally intense, but one that she hid from herself, a feeling of respect for Edward's determination to keep himself in this particular affair unspotted. And the human heart is a very mysterious thing. It is impossible to say that Leonora, in acting as she did, was not filled with a sort of hatred of Edward's final virtue. She wanted, I think, to despise him. He was, she realized, gone from her for good. Then let him suffer, let him agonize, let him, if possible, break and go to that hell that is the abode of broken resolves. She might have taken a different line. It would have been so easy to send the girl away, to stay with some friends, to have taken her away herself upon some pretext or other. That would not have cured things, but it would have been the decent line. But at that date, poor Leonora was incapable of taking any line whatever. She pitied Edward frightfully at one time, and then she acted along the lines of pity. She loathed him at another, and then she acted as her loathing dictated. She gasped as a person dying of tuberculosis gasps for air. She craved madly for communication with some other human soul, and the human soul that she selected was that of the girl. Perhaps Nancy was the only person that she could have talked to. With her necessity for reticences, with her coldness of manner, Leonora had singularly few intimates. She had none at all, with the exception of the Mrs. Colonel Whelan, who had advised her about the affair with La Dolciquenta, and the one or two religious who had guided her through life. The colonel's wife was at that time in Medaria. The religious she now avoided. 
Her visitor's book had seven hundred names in it. There was not a soul that she could speak to. She was Mrs. Ashburnham of Branshaw Telegraph. She was the great Mrs. Ashburnham of Branshaw. And she lay all day upon her bed in her marvelous, light, airy bedroom with the chintzes and the Chippendale and the portraits of deceased Ashburnhams by Zolfini and Zuckerhero. When there was a meet, she would struggle up, supposing it were within driving distance, and let Edward drive her and the girl to the crossroads or the country house. She would drive herself back alone. Edward would ride off with the girl. Ride Leonora could not that season. Her head was too bad. Each pace of her mare was an anguish. But she drove with efficiency and precision. She smiled at the Grimmers and the Volkoffs and the Headley Setons. She threw with exactitude pennies to the boys who opened gate for her. She sat upright on the seat of the high dog-cart. She waved her hands to Edward and Nancy as they rode off with the hounds. And everyone could hear a clear, high voice in the chilly weather, saying, Have a good time. Poor forlorn woman. There was, however, one spark of consolation. It came from the fact that Rodney Baham of Baham followed her always with his eyes. It had been three years since she had tried her abortive love affair with him. Yet still, on the winter mornings, he would ride up to her shafts and just say, Good day, and look at her with eyes that were not imploring, but seemed to say, You see, I am still, as the Germans say, A.D. at disposition. It was a great consolation, not because she proposed ever to take him up again, but because it showed her that there was in the world one faithful soul in riding breeches, and it showed her that she was not losing her looks. And, indeed, she was not losing her looks. She was forty, but she was as clean-run as the day she had left the convent as clear in outline, as clear-colored in the hair, as dark blue in the eyes. She thought that her looking-glass told her this. But there are always the doubts. Rodney Baham's eyes took them away. It is very singular that Leonora should not have aged at all. I suppose that there are some types of beauty, and even of youth, made for the embellishments that come with enduring sorrow. That is too elaborately put. I mean that Leonora, if everything had prospered, might have become too hard and maybe overbearing. As it was, she was tuned down to appearing efficient and yet sympathetic. That is the rarest of all blends. And yet I swear that Leonora, in her restrained way, gave the impression of being intensely sympathetic. When she listened to you, she appeared also to be listening to some sound, that was going on in the distance, but still she listened to you and took in what you said, which, since the record of humanity is a record of sorrows, was, as a rule, something sad. I think that she must have taken Nancy through many terrors of the night and many bad places of the day, and that would account for the girl's passionate love for the elder woman, for Nancy's love for Nithernora was an admiration that is awakened in Catholics by their feeling for the Virgin Mary and for various of the saints. It is too little to say that the girl would have laid her life at Lenora's feet. Well, she laid there the offer of her virtue and her reason. 
those were sufficient installments of her life. It would today be much better for Nancy Rufford if she were dead. Perhaps all these reflections are a nuisance, but they crowd on me. I will try to tell the story. You see, when she came back from Newham, Leonora began to have her headaches, headaches lasting through whole days during which she could speak no word and could bear to hear no sound. And day after day, Nancy would sit with her, silent and motionless for hours, steeping handkerchiefs in vinegar and water, and thinking her own thoughts. It must have been very bad for her, and her meals alone with Edward must have been bad for her too, and beastly bad for Edward. Edward, of course, wavered in his demeanor. What else could he do? At times he would sit silent and dejected over his untouched food. He would utter nothing but monosyllables when Nancy spoke to him. Then he was simply afraid of the girl falling in love with him. At other times he would take a little wine, pull himself together, attempt to shaft Nancy about a stake and binder hedge of that her mare had checked at, or talk about the habits of the Chatralis. That was when he was thinking that it was rough on the poor girl that he should have become a dull companion. He realized that his talking to her in the park at Neheim had done her no harm. But all that was doing a great deal of harm to Nancy. It gradually opened her eyes to the fact that Edward was a man with his ups and downs, and not an invariably gay uncle like a nice dog a trustworthy horse, or a girlfriend. She would find him in attitudes of frightful dejection, sunk into his armchair in the study that was half a gun-room. She would notice through the open door that his face was the face of an old, dead man, when he had no one to talk to. Gradually it forced itself upon her attention that there were profound differences between the pair that she regarded as her uncle and her aunt. It was a conviction that came very slowly. It began with Edward's giving an oldish horse to a young fellow called Selms. Selms' father had been ruined by a fraudulent solicitor, and the Selms family had to sell their hunters. It was a case that had excited a good deal of sympathy in that part of the county, and Edward, meeting the young man one day, unmounted, and seeing him to be very unhappy, had offered to give him an old Irish cob upon which he was riding. It was a silly sort of thing to do, really. The horse was worth from thirty to forty pounds, and Edward might have known that the gift would upset his wife. But Edward just had to comfort that unhappy young man, whose father he had known all his life. And it made it all the worse that young Selms could not afford to keep the horse, even. Edward recollected this immediately after he had made the offer, and said quickly, Of course, I mean that you should stable the horse at Barnshaw until you have time to turn round or want to sell him and get a better. Nancy went straight home and told all this to Leonora, who was lying down. She regarded it as a splendid instance of Edward's quick consideration for the feelings and the circumstances of the distressed. She thought it would cheer Leonora up, because it ought to cheer any woman up to know that she had such a splendid husband. That was the last girlish thought she ever had. For Leonora, whose headache had left her collected but miserably weak, turned upon her bed and uttered words that were amazing to the girl. I wish to God, she said, that he was your husband and not mine. We shall be ruined. 
We shall be ruined. Am I never to have a chance? And suddenly Leonora burst into a passion of tears. She pushed herself up from the pillows with one elbow and sat there, crying, 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 with her face hidden in her hands and the tears falling through her fingers. The girl flushed, stammered, and whimpered as if she had been personally insulted. But if Uncle Edward, she began, that man, said Leonora, with an extraordinary bitterness, would give the shirt off his back and off mine and off yours to any. She could not finish the sentence. At that moment, she had been feeling an extraordinary hatred and contempt for her husband. All the morning and all the afternoon, she had been lying there thinking that Edward and the girl were together, in the field and hacking at home at dusk. She had been digging her sharp nails into her palms. The house had been very silent in the drooping winter weather. Then, after an eternity of torture, there had invaded it the sound of opening doors, the girl's gay voice saying, Well, it was only under the mistletoe. And there was Edward's gruff undertone. Then Nancy had come in, with feet that had hastened up the stairs and had that tiptoed as they approached the open door of Leonora's room. Branshaw had a great big hall with oak floors and tiger skins. Round this hall there ran a gallery upon which Leonora's doorway gave. And even when she had the worst of her headaches, she liked to have her door open, I suppose, so that she might hear the approaching footsteps of ruin and disaster. At any rate, she hated to be in a room with a shut door. At that moment, Leonora hated Edward with a hatred that was like hell, and she would have liked to bring her riding whip down across the girl's face. What right had Nancy to be young and slender and dark? gay at times, at times mournful. What right had she to be exactly the woman to make Leonora's husband happy? For Leonora knew that Nancy would have made Edward happy. Yes, Leonora wished to bring her running whip down on Nancy's young face. She imagined the pleasure she would feel when the lash fell across those queer features, the plea she would feel at drawing the handle at the same moment toward her, so as to cut deep into the flesh and to leave a lasting wheel. Well, she left a lasting wheel, and her words cut deeply into the girl's mind. They neither of them spoke about that again. A fortnight went by, a fortnight of deep rains, of heavy fields, of bad scent. Leonora's headaches seemed to have gone for good. She hunted once or twice, letting herself be piloted by Byram, whilst Edward looked after the girl. Then one evening, when those three were dining alone, Edward said in the queer, deliberate, heavy tones that came out of him in those days, he was looking at the table, I have been thinking that Nancy ought to do more for her father. He is getting an old man. I have written to Colonel Rufford, suggesting that she should go to him. Leonora called out, How dare you? How dare you? The girl put her hand over her heart and cried out, Oh, my sweet Savior, help me. That was the queer way she thought within her mind. 
and the words forced themselves to her lips. Edward said nothing. And that night, by a merciless trick of the devil that pays attention to this sweltering hell of ours, Nancy Rufford had a letter from her mother. It came whilst Leonora was talking to Edward. Leonora would have intercepted as she had intercepted others. It was an amazing and horrible letter. I don't know what it contained. I just average out from its effects on Nancy that her mother, having eloped with some worthless sort of fellow, had done what is called sinking lower and lower. Whether she was actually on the streets, I do not know, but I rather think that she eked out a small allowance that she had from her husband by the means of livelihood. And I think that she stated as much in her letter to Nancy and upbraided the girl for living in luxury whilst her mother starved. And it must have been horrible in tone, for Mrs. Rufford was a cruel sort of woman at the best of times. It must have seemed to that poor girl opening her letter for distraction from another grief but in her bedroom like the laughter of a devil. I just cannot bear to think of my poor, dear girl at that moment. And at the same time, Leonora was lashing like a cold fiend into the unfortunate Edward. Or perhaps he was not so unfortunate because he had done what he knew to be the right thing. He may be deemed happy. I leave it to you. At any rate, he was sitting in his deep chair, and Leonora came into his room for the first time in nine years said, This is the most atrocious thing you have done in your atrocious life. He never moved, and he never looked at her. God knows what was in Leonora's mind exactly. I like to think that uppermost in it was concern and horror at the thought of the poor girls going back to a father whose voice made her shriek in the night, and indeed that motive was very strong with Leonora. But I think there was also present the thought that she wanted to go on torturing Edward with the girl's presence. She was, at the time, capable of that. Edward was sunk in his chair. There were in the room two candles, hidden by green glass shades. The green shades were reflected in the glasses of the bookcase. They contained not books but guns, with gleaming brown barrels and fishing rods and green bays over covers. There was, dimly to be seen above the mantelpiece, encumbered with spurs, hooves, and bronze models of horses, a dark brown picture of a white horse. If you think, Leonora said, that I do not know that you are in love with the girl, she began spiritedly, but she could not find any ending for the sentence. Edward did not stir, he never spoke, and then Leonora said, If you want me to divorce you, I will. You can marry her. She's in love with you. He groaned at that a little, Leonora said. Then she went away. Heaven knows what happened in Leonora after that. She certainly does not herself know. She probably said a good deal more to Edward than I have been able to report. But that is all that she has told me, and I am not going to make up speeches. To follow her psychological development of that moment... I think we must allow that she upbraided him for a great deal of their past life whilst Edward sat absolutely silent. And indeed, in speaking of it afterwards, she has said several times, I said a great deal more to him than I wanted to, just because he was so silent. She talked, in fact, in the endeavor to sting him into speech. 
She must have said so much that, with the expression of her grievance, her mood changed. She went back to her own room in the gallery and sat there for a long time thinking. And she thought herself into a mood of absolute unselfishness, of absolute self-contempt, too. She said to herself that she was no good, that she had failed in all her efforts, in her efforts to get Edward back, as in her efforts to make him curb his expenditure. She imagined herself to be exhausted. She imagined herself to be done. Then a great fear came over her. She thought that Edward, after what she had said to him, must have committed suicide. She went out on to the gallery and listened. There was no sound in the house except the regular beat of the great clock in the hall. But even in her debased condition, she was not the person to hang about. She acted. She went straight to Edward's room, opened the door, and looked in. He was oiling the breech action of a gun. It was an unusual thing for him to do. At that time of night, in his evening clothes, it never occurred to her, nevertheless, that he was going to shoot himself with the implement. She knew that he was doing it just for occupation, to keep himself from thinking. He looked up when she opened the door, his face illuminated by the light cast upwards from the round orifice in the green candle shades. She said, I don't imagine that I should find Nancy here. She thought that she owed that to him. He answered then, I don't imagine that you did imagine it. Those were the only words he spoke that night. She went like a lame duck back through the long corridors. She stumbled over the familiar tiger skins in the dark hall. She could hardly drag one limb after the other. In the gallery she perceived that Nancy's door was half open and that there was light in the girl's room. A sudden madness possessed her, a desire for action, a thirst for self-explanation. The rooms all gave on to the gallery, Leonora's to the east, the girl's next, then Edward's. The sight of those three open doors, side by side, gaping to receive whom the chances of the black night might bring, made Leonora shudder all over her body. She went into Nancy's room. The girl was sitting perfectly still in an armchair, very upright, as she had been taught to sit at the convent. She appeared to be as calm as a church. Her hair fell black and like a pall. Down over both her shoulders, the fire beside her was burning brightly. She must have just put the coals on. She was in a white silk kimono that covered her to her feet. The clothes that she had taken off were exactly folded upon the proper seats. Her long hands were one upon each arm, the chair, that had a pink and white chintz back. Leonora told me these things. She seemed to think it extraordinary that the girl could have done such orderly things as fold up the clothes she had taken off upon such a night, when Edward had announced that he was going to send her to her father, and when, from her mother, she had received that letter. The letter, in its envelope, was in her right hand. Leonora did not at first perceive it. She said, What are you doing so late? The girl answered, just thinking. They seemed to think in whispers and speak below their breath. Then Leonora's eyes fell on the envelope, and she recognized Mrs. Rufford's handwriting. It was one of those moments when thinking was impossible, Leonora said. It was as if stones were being thrown at her from every direction, and she could only run. She heard herself exclaim, Edward's dying because of you. He's dying. He's worth more than either of us. The girl looked past her at the panels of the half-closed door. 
My poor father, she said. My poor father. You must stay here, Leonora answered fiercely. You must stay here. I tell you, you must stay here. I'm going to Glasgow, Nancy answered. I shall go to Glasgow tomorrow morning. My mother is in Glasgow. It appears that it was in Glasgow that Mrs. Rufford pursued her disorderly life. She had selected that city, not because it was more profitable, but because it was the natal home of her husband, to whom she desired to cause as much pain as possible. You must stay here, Leonore began, to save Edward. He's dying for love of you. The girl turned her calm eyes upon Leonora. I know it, she said, and I am dying for love of him. Leonora uttered an ah that, in spite of herself, was an ah of horror and of grief. That is why, the girl continued, I am going to Glasgow to take my mother away from there, she added, to the ends of the earth, for if the last month had made her nature that of a woman, her phrases were still romantically those of a schoolgirl. It was as if she had grown up so quickly that there had not been time to put her hair up. But she added, We're no good, my mother and I. Leonora said with her fierce calmness, No, no, you're not no good. It's that I'm no good. You can't let that man go on to ruin for want of you. You must belong to him. The girl, she said, smiled at her with a queer, faraway smile. As if she were a thousand years old, as if Leonora were a tiny child. I knew you would come to that, she said very slowly. But we are not worth it, Edward and I. End of Part 4, Chapter 2